Hey there, this is Volts for October 11th, 2021. The good news about clean energy with Kingsmill Bond. I am your host, David Roberts. It seems like good news is difficult to come by in the U.S. these days. What with democracy on the verge of crumbling and the last big chance to address climate change held in the fickle and ill-informed hands of the Senate's most conservative Democrat who lives on a yacht and literally makes money off of coal plants. As it happens, I have a stash of good news I've been holding in reserve, a guest I've been meaning to talk to forever, but have been treating like a break glass in case of emergency kind of thing. I felt grim enough this week that I finally called him up. His name is Bond. Kingsmill Bond. Sorry, I had to do it. He's an energy strategist at the think tank Carbon Tracker, where he arrived after decades of doing market analysis and strategy for big financial institutions like Deutsche Bank and Citibank. Bond's experience and research have led him to the conclusion that the shift to clean energy has become unstoppable and that it will be the dominant force shaping financial markets and geopolitics in the 21st century. He argues that we are on the front end of a massive, precipitous wave of change to rival the Industrial Revolution, one that will unfold even if policy support is weak and erratic, purely on the strength of economics and innovation. We need to update our mental model of climate mitigation, he says. It's not about pain, about how to distribute extra costs and who will be the most altruistic. It's about gain, about which countries will benefit most and fastest from tapping of almost limitless new markets and opportunities for growth. There are no fundamental limits to the spread of zero carbon energy. There's more than enough renewable energy accessible with today's technology to supply the world's energy needs. Not only do we know how to get there, it is where we are headed based on current market and technology trends. The key to succeeding on climate change is simply accelerating what is already underway, pushing a rolling boulder a little faster. Like I said, I'm in need of good news like this, so I was excited to talk to Bond about the cost of renewable energy, the peak in fossil fuel demand, and the inevitability of a 100% clean energy system. All right, without further ado, Kingsmill Bond, welcome to Volts. Thank you for having me on the show, David. Kingsmill, I've been wanting to talk to you forever, but I thought I would wait and kind of hold you in reserve until I was feeling really down. <laughs> and, and this week, I don't know if you're following the situation in America, it's not pretty. So I could use some good news. So um, I've been uh, following you for years and you've been a reliable source of good news. So we're going to dive into that right now. You recently published an article uh, arguing that the story of climate change mitigation, we need to flip our story. It's not one of pain. It's not about distributing costs and sacrifice and who's going to be more altruistic. It's about gain. It's about who's going to claim the giant rewards that are waiting. So, so before we dive into the specifics, maybe just give me the one paragraph uh, elevator pitch version of why, why people confronting the daunting task of addressing climate change should feel better than they generally do. Well, thanks very much for putting it in those terms. Look, I think um, the, the point here simply is that we have got this new, enormous, cheap energy resource in solar and wind that we've unlocked with technology. And 
we're just starting to be able to apply it. And as we apply it, it gets cheaper because it's on learning curves. And therefore, we've unlocked an enormous cheap source of energy, which can be used to provide all of our current energy uh, demands and indeed the energy demands of, of those who have very level limited amounts of energy and therefore it's a it's a it's a really exciting opportunity and moment to to do that the center of that story the big which you mentioned is the learning curves that that renewable energy are on so let's start with those um you single out four different technologies that are on steep learning curves that um you know if we just project out continuing bear all kinds of good news so tell us what those technologies are and what the sort of curves look like right now the, the four most clear technologies which are on established learning curves are solar PV, wind, both for producing electricity, batteries for storage, and electrolyzers to convert that electricity into uh, hydrogen. And all four of them have been the subject of a recent paper by Oxford University looking at their, uh, their learning curves, that is to say, the, uh, the amount that their costs drop for every doubling in deployment. And... They're all of these learning curves of, of between 16 and 34%, which w- was already fairly well known. But the additional point that's been made by this paper is that when technologies get onto learning curves, they tend to stay on them for very long periods. And therefore, mathematically, when you're trying to project forward future costs for these technologies, the most, most logical assumption is that those learning curves will continue. And this is extremely significant because we all know that they are growing very quickly. And if you assume that that growth continues, and there's no reason why it shouldn't, and we can talk about that in a minute, but um, if you assume that that growth continues, these technologies will get incredibly cheap. I mean, actually, this is a kind of academic debate because you're already getting solar PV uh, being produced at between 10 and $20 per megawatt hour uh, in, in certain favoured locations. So it is, already, in fact, already incredibly cheap. Uh, but the point to me is that, that that cheap energy source is A, going to get cheaper, B, going to spread globally, and, and then uh, C, it's being followed up by these uh, these other technologies, also on learning curves, which will then provide us, as I say, with the energy that, that, that we need at much lower cost. I got a, a bunch of questions about that, but just a, a, on the side real quick. Um... The electrolyzers seem like the newest of those four. How confident are we in that particular learning curve? Like solar's pretty established. Wind's been established for a while. Batteries have been around for a while. But electrolyzers seem like they've just recently come in for a lot of innovation. So what's the state of our knowledge there? The paper that the um, the Oxford team did, they looked at about five or 600 different technologies uh, over long periods. And they noted that actually very few of them get onto learning curves. Hmm. And uh, as you say, the, the electrolyzer data set is shorter, but I, it still goes back a couple of decades, I, I believe. And therefore, this is, from their analysis, another technology also on learning curves. And it seems to be already exhibiting the same learning characteristics that, that we've already witnessed in solar wind batteries. Because first of all, in, in order, as you know, to make green hydrogen, you need solar wind electricity. So half the story is already on learning curves. And then the question simply is, well, can you get the electrolyzer itself onto learning curves? And what's special about this technology, first of all, it's also uh, what they call granular and discrete. That is to say, you can have very small pieces of equipment and they're easily replicated and they can be built at any size. And many people can do it and many people can innovate. And that's 
indeed what they're now doing. And as we now see huge amounts of um, capital flowing into people's hydrogen strategies all across the world, from Chile to China, to Morocco, to, to the United States, it seems extremely reasonable to imagine that the costs of electrolysis will also continue to fall. I do want to talk about the future of those cost curves, but let's just, as a snapshot of the present, where is clean energy relative to fossil fuels? Is it still too glib to say <laughs> clean energy is cheaper than fossil fuels, or, or how nuanced is that story right now? So, so the debate goes like this. The advocates of clean energy, such as myself, say, look, it's incredibly cheap. It's prices down to 10 or $20 per megawatt hour. The average, the global average, depending how you calculate, is between 40 and 50. This is the LCOE we're talking about. And this is a uh, this is a great story. The, the counter argument is people say, well, you're only talking about the LCOE. You're not thinking about intermittency. Um, mm-hmm. They furthermore, they say, well, OK, it's cheap in certain locations, but uh, there are other locations, most notably sub-Saharan Africa, parts of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where it remains extremely expensive because the cost of capital is high. And therefore, it's not a fair comparison and it's not a substitute for, for fossil fuels. And the way to reconcile those two perspectives, really, I, I would suggest, is this point about learning curves. Because as the costs get lower and lower, this debate kind of fades away because it, it, it is fair to say that LCOE is not necessarily the, the best way to calculate costs and there's other issues to account for in intermittency. But when costs get incredibly low and you can overbuild, then that debate really becomes much less significant. And, and furthermore, it's also, again, as this paper actually points out from Oxford, the, the country with the on the 10th percentile of cost today, that is to say the most expensive countries today, will be the same price, solar and wind electricity, as the cheapest countries today in 10 years, um, mm. because they're on these learning curves. So it's a I would suggest that these learning curves solve this solve this conundrum, solve the problem. They brute force it, in other words, like you get so cheap that you can start being profligate with it. You can be profligate with it. But actually, I mean, in, in fairness, there's also other solutions, as, as many people have also pointed out. There are certain countries and regions which today have penetration of variable renewables of uh, over 50%, most notably uh, Denmark, South Australia, Northern Germany. And are aspiring, as in the case of California, to 100% based uh, renewable energy systems. So, what's been notable throughout this debate for the last 20 years is that the ceiling of the possible is constantly rising. So, if you if you go back as we have done to um, how the debate was being held about 20 years ago, you'll see these very fancy letters from the Irish and German grid operators saying that. Variable renewables could never be more than 2% of the system, um, you know, for a whole series of technical reasons, which are beyond me. Um, but actually, what's happened continuously is that people have come up with new solutions, be they demand-side management or supply-side management or bigger grids or uh, batteries or interconnectors or, or better software or digitization, smart meters, so on and so forth. There have been a whole series of different, of different solutions. So I think the point we really want to make is that that ceiling is a rising ceiling. If I can cut in there, I mean, I was going to get to intermittency later, but let's just let's just tackle it, you know, because this is, I think, the intermittency thing is the number one mental block people have <laughs> about this stuff, in my experience. So you're right. I mean, one one obvious point is that the amount we're allegedly going to be able to integrate onto the grid keeps rising and rising and rising. People set these very confident limits, and the limits get busted through. 
but but looking out, you know, the sort of conventional wisdom is that the closer you get to your variable energy providing the majority of your energy, the higher the cost of that variability and the more difficult it is to address. How confident are you that like that gap from 80% to 100% is is bridgeable at reasonable cost? I guess there's two answers to this. The first is that this is an absolutely academic debate um, because mm. today solar and wind uh, are 10% of the global electricity supply. And, and therefore to worry in 2021 about how we go from 80 to 100 is, <laughs> is, is completely academic. I mean, the right analogy I, I often use, I say, look, you know, it's like sending my daughter to kindergarten aged five and worrying about how she's going to pass her university maths finals. <laughs> it, it, it's like, yeah, sure, she's going to have to get there eventually, but there's an awfully long way between now and then. And uh, history suggests, i.e. these learning curves, that we will keep on coming up with with, with ways of, of solving this. So I, th I think the first point is it really is, it's not actually a fair question. And and then the second point is that actually then if, if you well, as I say, if you assume these learning curves continues, we do get incredibly cheap um, sources of renewable electricity, then it's absolutely inevitable that we will find ways of using that. And, mm. and perhaps if I can step back for a second, it, it's often worthwhile going back a century and asking yourself, well, you know, had you been trying to think about the future in, let's say, 1921, when we were on the cusp of a tripling in the global population over the next century, actually, or a quadruple of the global population and a, a tenfold increase in uh, in energy demand, and so on and so forth. You know, could you ever have predicted all of the new technology innovation that was going to come? Of course, right. you couldn't. You know, and this is the point: people sit in darkened rooms in Paris in 2021 <laughs> and seriously think they can forecast the innovation genius and. Uh, but but in in fairness, like we're a lot farther away from 1920 than 2050 is from us. We need to we definitely need to compress the the amount of time in which we have to do this. So in, in some sense, you might say that the solutions ought to at least be visible by now. Actually, that's the point. The, the solutions are visible. So you do have detailed plans being made in Australia, in California, in in Northern Europe for electricity systems based on 100% renewable electricity. And, and of course, uh, you also famously have um, work done by people like, like the great Mark Jacobson, you know, who's basically tried to figure out the solution for every single country in the world. So it's not like there, aren't, there are no solutions ahead of us. There are plenty of, of solutions at, at different levels of granularity. So let's talk about the cost curves then, because this story sort of um, depends on the cost curves continuing, as you said. So on the one hand, you can look at history and say, well, you know, cost curves tend to continue once they start. But then there's all sorts of stories you could think of about, um, you know, materials shortages, you know, lithium becoming problematic, um, mining becoming more problematic, supply chain problems, maybe even caused by climate change, space constraints, uh, NIMBYs who try to stop, who want to stop construction of things. I mean, there are, you can, <laughs> you can come up with all kinds of stories about things that might um, impede or slow these cost curves. Uh, so, so how confident are you that none of those will gain enough purchase to, to sort of slow the thing on a, on a macro level? I always smile when people talk to me about limits to growth, because, you know, the point simply is that 
renewable energies are uh, essentially by definition limitless and absolutely enormous. And yet the real limits to growth, of course, are to the fossil fuel system, which is constrained in terms of the amount that we have and incredibly constrained in terms of our capacity to burn it. So it's worth standing back for a moment and recognizing that the real limits to growth are with the current system, not with the new system. So if the second question is, well, are there limits that we are insurmountable, that the talent and capital of of the world cannot handle? I, I think the answer to that one it absolutely obviously no, because A, we have we have continuously solved each of these problems as we have encountered them. And then when people come up with, if I can answer this very specific question about mineral shortage, mm-hmm. it's an absolutely bogus problem, actually. So so people will say, you know, you need, for example, 200 kilograms extra of uh, minerals in order to have an electric vehicle, which more than a, an ICE car. And, and that sounds quite scary until you, you think, well, actually, an average ICE car uses 15,000 kilograms of oil over its lifetime. And those 200 kilograms extra that you require of minerals, by definition, can be recycled, whilst um, fossil fuels, obviously, you burn them once and you never use them again. So, But let me give you a couple more stats. I mean, uh, th- there is enough lithium, for example, in known reserves today to be able to satisfy over a century of current demand. There's enough cobalt in the world for for a thousand million cars. And and if the answer is, well, that's really scary because we might need 2,000 million cars, this again (laughs) is an absolutely fake debate because first of all, uh, we can and are engineering our technologies to reduce cobalt as Elon Musk is doing. Anyway, but but even if we weren't, we build new mines as demand. I mean, it's pretty. It's it's, it's mining one hundred and one, right? Demand increases, prices go up a bit. Um, people build new mines, and and reserves increase. I mean, the, these are absolutely fake problems. Actually, are there no um, you know social or moral aspects to this though? The driving driving an expansion in in mining. Well, undoubtedly, and this I guess is why people are saying, I think quite rightly, we shouldn't make the same mistakes this time as we made last time. Mm. So that is to say, we should be in in our expansion of these mines to build out the new renewables world. We shouldn't be trashing nature with impunity the way we have done in the past. And we should be recycling this stuff in order to minimise our impact on the planet and so on. But I think, again, it's let me just come back to the main point, which is that it's a question of degree, right? If you require 100, or in the case actually of a coal-fired generation versus a solar panel, 1,000 times less stuff in order to generate your electricity, by definition, you're going to be having a dramatically lower impact on the planet in order to do that. In your discussion of S-curves, you mentioned something about a 5% salience threshold or something like that, something about when a product reaches kind of 5% market penetration, certain dynamics take hold. What what was that about? This is a kind of very, it's actually quite an intuitive observation. We see it, all of us, in our own lives. Um, and if you think back to when you got your first smartphone um, or when you got the internet or when you got, in fact, going back a little bit further, when you got your first mobile phone and so on and so forth, what happens is that as new technologies get adopted, 
they, they move up these S curves where penetration goes from being, you know, it takes a very, very long time to get the technology good enough for people to adopt it. So to go from 0% penetration to, to around 5%, I mean, it's not, of course, exactly 5%, because it depends, it could mm-hmm. be between two and five, but whatever, let's call it five. It takes a very long time to get to that level. But then when it, when it gets good enough, and everyone wants it, and demand goes through the roof, and early coast start driving costs down further, you know, actually, you go very, very quickly from about 5% market share to about 80% market share. That's the nature of S-curves. And you can imagine it in your own mind, I guess. And it's, the point is, it's, this is something actually which is very, very well documented for many technologies o- over the course of, of a century and more. And it goes all the way back to you know, cars and electricity in, in the United States in the early 20th uh, century. And then you know, all the great stuff we've had since then, you know, microwaves and toasters and, and, and TVs and, and, and now, as I say, the internet. Uh, so it's quite a, a well-appreciated observation that stuff moves very, very quickly from, from low penetration to high penetration when it's cheap enough and when it's good enough. And therein lies the debate. Yeah. So where where's renewable energy on that around that threshold? Do you think it's crossed it? You think we're on that on that S curve now? If you look at the history of deployment of, for example, solar panels, what you will see if you chart it is exponential growth taking place. That is to say, high growth of between twenty five and forty percent growth per annum over the last two decades. And again, there are many other people, including the great um, Ray Kurzweil, who pointed this out, that you know, solar deployment has been doubling every two years, roughly, for the last couple of decades. And that's an exponential growth curve. Mm. And uh, so just empirically, that's exactly what is happening. Um, and what's also incredibly notable is that experts who try to forecast future solar deployment, well, they either get it completely wrong, the way the IEA famously has done for the last 20 years. They they imagine it's linear growth. So if demand uh, growth today is, um, if you go back 10 years, demand growth was, let's say, 10 gigawatts a year. And the IEA was projecting you know, forward growth of 10 gigawatts a year for, for the next 20 years. And you know, and then the next year, it's, it's, it's uh, say 14, and the year after it's 20, because we're on this exponential growth curve. Um, so that's. Can I pause you there for a second? Because this is a subject of some fascination to me. This new Oxford paper you're talking about that that you mentioned earlier is it really the first model that projected cost curves simply continuing in the shape that they currently exhibit? Because it's 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 remarkable to me, and it's remarkable to everybody I know that the modelers have gotten these cost projections so wrong in such a consistent way over and over again for, I guess, 20 years now, since the early 2000s. What are we to make of this? What's going on there? You're right. It's absolutely shocking. And it's not just the IEA, but it's almost all modeling of the future. Yeah, it's it's almost universal in the field, it seems like, or has been. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. I mean, I ask people about why why don't they do this? And, and well, there's a series of answers. But the first answer basically is, well, it's too complicated. We can't put these learning curves into our models because it's too complicated. And you're like, okay, fine. Why do you just get a bit more computing power? Surely it can be done. But anyway, that's that seems to be one answer. The second answer, I guess, linked to that is that these models are, of course, incredibly complex. And you know, if you're trying to forecast kerosene demand in Madagascar in 2070, you know, you have to think a lot about that. And you're not mm-hmm. necessarily, therefore, thinking about you know what's possibly a little bit more important, which is the the learning curves of these technologies. So they're overcomplicating. And this, again, I guess, is why for me as a strategist, it's second nature to simplify. And that's what the Oxford paper has done. They've got to the kernel 
of what's driving change. And it's those learning curves. Um, And then I guess the third reason why incumbent models have been so reluctant to incorporate these um, learning curves is that so many of them are in fact made by fossil fuel incumbents. And turkeys don't vote for Christmas. That is to say, (laughs) there's no incentive for you if you're working for Exxon or Shell or whoever it is. There's very little incentive, at least there was until very recently, for you to say, do you know what? Actually, those battery costs might fall a little bit faster than we think. And EV's growth might be a lot faster than we think. And oil demand might be a lot lower than we think. And therefore, maybe I might not have a job. I mean, people don't forecast that stuff. Um, And then, sorry, the final point is that, and and actually, I'd like to come back to this because it's actually completely fake argument. People say, we want to be conservative. You know, solar costs have dropped at um, whatever it is, um, 20% a year for the last 20 years. But in the future, we don't want to be too aggressive. We don't know the detail. We can't forecast the detailed uh, solution. So we're going to be conservative and we're going to say they're going to fall at 2% a year. And this is just intellectually incoherent because... Why would it suddenly stop falling? Just because you can't see in detail, why would you suddenly forecast a drop in cost? And so the other reason why it's intellectually incoherent is because as a result of the failure to recognize reality in these fast-growing technologies, people have to make their models balance. And they go, well, in order to make our model, my model balance, 2050 net zero, I'm going to pop in CCS and B-E-C-C-S, you know, and Martians coming from space to take away our our carbon and other completely idiotic ideas, which have absolutely no basis um, in in empirical fact. And that's the point. You've got to try and rely as closely as you can on the facts. Yeah, this is, I mean, this sort of my point is like, it seems like just intellectually speaking, the most conservative thing you could do is assume that things are going to continue happening the way they're happening, right? I mean, that's that's almost by definition Occam's razor. And if the learning curves continue the way they're going, then, you know, all these forecasts are going to get blown away. It's it's a it's a bizarre situation. Yeah, it, it is. And actually, I mean, again, this, this uh, sorry to lean so heavily on Doyne Farmer and his Oxford paper, but it, you know, it's great work. They they make exactly this point. They say, just look, mathematically, the future is unknown. There's a whole continuum of options um, between basically no change and and, an incredibly fast change. But the kind of business as usual scenario, which is central to so much current thinking, is mathematically a a complete outlier. You know, it might happen, but it's incredibly unlikely. We we might suddenly stop innovating. Right. Costs might stop falling. Deployment might stop happening. Governments might give up. <laughs> uh, people and companies and, and, and the financial markets might stop trying to do anything. And we might decide that we want to go over the cliff of, of, of catastrophic global warming. Maybe we will. But that's pretty unlikely. Right. Before we get completely past the, the renewables or the clean energy question, the other area that people tend to cite as a as a limit or a worry or at least an outstanding problem is these uh, so-called difficult to abate sectors. There's you know heavy transportation. There's industrial processes, steel, concrete. Is the story there the same? Which is just clean energy is going to get so cheap it's just going to bulldoze through those problems. Or, or, or where do, what do you see happening in those sectors? The hard to abate sectors, it's, it's been a, a very live debate, as you know, for the last three years. And the, the kind of argument people make is they say, well, you can't solve, uh, you can't get renewable uh, energy into aeroplanes and, and, and cement and steel and, and shipping. And therefore, there will be no energy transition. So th- th- there are two problems with this argument. The first one is um, you know, the kind of point I made earlier, which is that this is the final area that needs to be solved. And 
um, we today, so if we look at the entire energy system in terms of primary energy supply, solar and wind, um, these variable energy sources uh, on these very fast growth rates are, are only providing around 4 or 5% of global supply. And these hard-to-solve sectors are about a quarter of, of global primary energy demand. So the first point to be made is, and as I said earlier, this is a, this is a very long-term problem which mm-hmm. we will need to solve, but it's quite a long way in the future before we actually have to solve it. Then the second point, and this is an argument that, that, that we and many other people have been making for, for four or five years, but, but actually a much more practical observation is that solutions are indeed already starting to materialise for these hard-to-solve sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have organisations like the, the Brilliant Energy Transitions Commission, which identify for every single one of these hard-to-solve sectors prospective solutions. So, for example, in the steel sector, Three years ago, seemed to be completely impossible, uh, hard to abate sector. Now you already have people like Andrew Forrest um, in Australia talking about taking his iron ore, putting up solar panels and wind turbines in the Australian desert, using that to create hydrogen and using the hydrogen to make steel out of the iron ore and then shipping that steel all around the world. And, and there are now lots of other companies talking about hydrogen-based steel. Uh, in the same way in the shipping industry, and we have Maersk now talking about using ammonia as a shipping fuel, which is basically a hydrogen-based solution. And I think this is the wider point. This is why we're so excited about electrolyzers being on, on, on cost curves. Ultimately, the way that we, humanity, are going to solve this problem is we're going to decarbonize electricity. We have solutions for that. We're going to electrify whatever we can, and new solutions materialize every day. And then the stuff that we can't, we'll use some variant of hydrogen. Right. And that, that I think very clearly is becoming the answer. So when hydrogen also gets onto Costco's and people are starting to think about how to put hydrogen in, into steel and, and, and shipping and indeed airlines and so on and so forth, you can see the, the contours of the new world that will emerge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's shift uh, to a, another source of good news. I'm not talking about national uh, and international politics, which both seem dismal at the moment, uh, dismal in the U.S. and uh, at the international level, at least in the lead up to COP, there's a lot of fumbling around and uh, bad signs. But at the sub-national level, states and cities and corporations and financial institutions and sort of sub-national entities seem to really be taking the lead on this stuff in a way that gets more and more glaring every year. So let's talk about some of the stuff that you see happening at that level that gives you hope. Yeah, I think um, it is indeed great when you see cities coming up with solutions and and regions and um, businesses. But actually the uh, f- forgive me, David, I'm not going to give you chapter or verse and, and what's happening in you know Barcelona or whatever, because I think the wider point that as a strategist I can comment on is that we have to realise that politics follows technology. Mm. That is to say, as new technology solutions materialise, politicians use them. And you know the, the best example of this famously is Boris Johnson in the UK, who you know, 20 years ago was laughing at all this green technology and was extremely sceptical mm. about it. And, and now that you, you could buy an EV in the UK for more or less the same price as a conventional car, he's already talking about, well, no, sorry, he's already put into place uh, the prospect of bans of the sale of, of conventional cars. And, and he keeps on bringing forward the, the date by which in the electricity sector we're going to have a, a renewables-based system. So, yeah, politicians will use uh, will use the technologies that materialise, and, and, and it's great that it's happening on a local level first, but it also does need to happen on a national level. And, and I think... Sorry, if I possibly jump ahead. This is the absolutely key point. 
when I when I attend conferences and, and, and talk to people, developers in the field, the problem they talk about, they don't talk about a lack of capital. They don't talk about technological problems. What they do talk about all the time is the fact that the policies are tooled up for the fossil fuel system, right. not for the renewable system. So this is the key point that needs to get through to policymakers. You know, can they please stop fiddling around talking about these wonderful strategic <laughs> visions and actually do their job, which is detailed amendment of policies and detailed changes to uh, support regimes for fossil fuels and renewables. I mean, this is, it's really hard, difficult stuff, and it's not happening. This may be a difficult question to answer in the abstract, but but one of the other perpetual debates in this area is sort of how how big the policy lever is, how necessary it is, how much of this has a momentum of its own just from economic development, from technology innovation. And I think you have claimed that this transition is inevitable no matter what um, governments do at this point. So how big of a space is there for policy? How much can policy do to slow or, or speed it down? And how much does it have a life of its own at this point? We put out recently a, um, a report which... Um, tries to encapsulate this in a very simple framing. So the first observation is that everywhere is different and every sector and technology is a little bit different, right? Mm. Um, to state the obvious. Um, and, and then secondly, you need different policies at different stages in the life cycle of change. So that is right. to say, at the start, you do need technological innovation and government's very good at that. Then after that, you need, as costs start to fall, you do need government support to these growing industries, as the Germans very kindly did with the solar industry uh, 15 years ago. But then, as the costs start to fall towards price parity with the fossil fuel system, the role of government actually changes very significantly. So rather than, as it were, trying to push water uphill, they mm. need to remove the blockages to allow it to fall downhill. And that's, I think, where we've now got to, certainly in the electricity sector and to a degree in the transportation sector. The role of government now actually is to remove the blockages which are stopping change. And I'll give you a good example. I was talking to an incredibly frustrated wind developer in northern England a couple of months ago. And he was saying, you know, I've got a huge offshore wind project I want to bring to bear, but I can't do it because there's one landowner mm -hmm. who won't allow me to allow my cable onshore. And it's lasted for two years. A very familiar story all across the world. So, I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. Are we really going to allow our future to be mortgaged for the sake of people who want to block it for whatever bizarre reason? I mean, that's exactly now the role of government. And before you accuse me of trying to trample over people's rights and so on and so forth, it actually goes deep into the heart of many systems. So, for example, there was an extraordinary report written by the Institute of Fiscal Studies in the UK last week or two weeks ago about how uh, the government taxes electricity at, at I think, um, effective cost of, of about £100 a tonne of CO2, but subsidises gas use mm. to the tune of £20 per tonne. Mm. I mean... This is just idiotic. Why is it that we give $500 billion a year of, of subsidies to the fossil fuel industry? I mean, there's an awful lot of very detailed work that governments now need to do to remove these barriers to change. And I would suggest that's actually the cutting edge. That's what now needs to happen. There's a lot of uh, talk these days about financial institutions and and the Fed, you know, sort of getting into this, it's pushing for more pricing of carbon risk, stuff like that. 
How big of an influence do you think that's having, the discussion that's moved into the financial world? The, the financial world, somewhat belatedly, is, is waking up to the systemic risk of carbon. And they should, because we did this study which suggests that about a quarter of equity markets and half of bond markets are in sectors which are either fossil fuel producers or heavy fossil fuel users like mm. stainless cement and stuff. So it's incredibly deeply ingrained inside financial markets. As change happens, as new technologies materialize, you're going to get disruption. You're already getting disruption right across these sectors. And that creates financial risk. So it's quite right, I would suggest, for, uh, for financial market regulators and participants to, to look at this risk. I think what somewhat disappoints us thus far is that there's still a little bit like um, the uh, the IEA model we talked modeling we talked about earlier. They're still fiddling around at the margin. They're not really getting to the heart of the risk. I would suggest that is there. And I, the good example is from the banks actually. So mm. if you talk to most global banks today, um, and we talk to a few, they will say we've got this covered. We we totally believe in in all this green stuff, and um, you know we've decarbonized our head office, and we're getting renewable uh, electricity. And furthermore, you know, we continue to lend billions and tens of billions to the coal sector and the oil sector for their expansion. But don't worry, you know, we've got it covered because our risk models tell us that there's no risk from this stuff. And you then probe a little bit, and it turns out that they've got risk models built up over 40 years of ever-rising fossil fuel demand. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So they've got the wrong, they've got, they're just, they're doing bad modeling. They're not sufficiently, they don't understand where their risk is. They're not taking account of it. And, and if people like uh, Ceres, for example, has analysed the, the, the US uh, financial sector and figured out that half of the loans, half the syndicated loans to fossil fuel-linked sectors, and they figured out that actually the banking capital of the US banking system would be wiped out in the event of a, a, a disruptive uh, energy transition. So again, not my analysis, that of series, but the point nevertheless remains that there's a lot of risk which is not necessarily being accounted for. So sorry, if I then come back to the positive stuff that financial markets are doing, yeah, it's great. Financial markets are starting to wake up to this risk. They're starting to think about pricing it in. But, but let's be clear, there's a very long way to go. Mm-hmm. It almost seems when I think about the disruptive character of a, of a energy transition, it almost seems more to me like, the world knows how to accommodate the rapid growth of a new industry. It almost seems like the decline of fossil fuels is going to be more disruptive in a lot of ways. And you talk about fossil fuel demand peaking in various places already and, and, and approaching peaks other places. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, where have you seen it? Where do you expect to see it? And also, um, what can we expect those peaks to look like over like the midterm? So this looks like a very um, mad argument on our part. So here we are with fossil fuel demand booming, um, and a shortage of coal in China and record high gas prices and coal prices and so on and so forth. But I will nevertheless stick to my guns because at the end of the day, this is just maths. So what's happening is you have, a, you have a, an energy system which is growing and dominated by fossil fuels. And then you have this new kid on the block of, of these fast growing renewable energy technologies, and they're moving up the S curves. And just mathematically, at some stage, and we'll come back to where that is, at some stage, it will be conceded that the demand for the incumbent technology with 80% market share in a low growth system inevitably must peak as you get this fast growing new challenger coming into the market. It must peak and, and, then, and then decline. So the, you know, the point to me is that mathematically, it, it will and must happen. So the question then is, well, how does this play out? And 
well, sorry, the, the, the point, the first point then is that we still argue that you've got to peak fossil fuel demand for all fossil fuels, that is to say coal and oil and gas, uh, in 2019. And the COVID has damaged them so significantly that by the time demand comes back, it won't go significantly beyond that 2019 peak. That's the overall argument. And, and the reason why... And that's why, let me pause you there, that's global, you're talking about global... That's global fossil fuel demand. So you, you think it's peaked, it's, you think it peaked in 2019? So we think it peaked in 2019. And again, the reason why this is a credible argument, I don't know if I can sustain the maths on a, on a, on a podcast, as it were, but if you imagine a global system, energy system, growing at 1% a year, and the challenger of renewables is 5% of that system growing at 20% a year, 5% times 20% is 1%. So the moment that solar and wind get to a 5% market share in a 1% growth system, they will take all of the growth. And that's the moment for the right. peaking of the fossil fuel system. And, and the point to me is that COVID basically brought that moment forward. We had forecast that moment for the mid-2020s. Um, COVID brought it forward basically to 2019. So you are indeed, you know, in 2021, you in certain areas, you might get back to close to where you were back in 2019 and, you know, 2022, 2023, you know, two or three years of bouncing along the top. But, you know, as this stuff keeps on growing, you do inevitably get peak and a decline. So, so therefore, to put the current state of affairs into that context, you're going to crash, you're going to bounce back and you've got lots of bottlenecks and, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's demand um, for, for stuff that people didn't buy, they're now starting to buy. So inevitably, you're going to get spikes. We had exactly the same thing famously back in 2010. But that shouldn't detract from the wider observation that continued growth of this stuff is going to drive a peak. So we're just to try and make this more apparent as an argument, it's worth thinking about two mountains, David, two mountains. So you've got the the Matterhorn, which famously is like kind of V-shaped peak. And the Matterhorn is what happens to discrete individual goods like like mobile phones, like Nokia's sales can fall off a cliff like the Matterhorn. Um, However, when you're thinking about systems where you've got embedded demand in those billion cars, then your peaking is going to look a little bit more like Mount Fuji. That is to say, you've got a long, slow slope up, a plateau at the top for, let's say, five to 10 years, depends a little bit on, on the detail. And then you've got you know a slope downwards, um, a long slope downwards. And, and that roughly is the pattern for what, what you see in other technology shifts. Actually, if you go back to with data we have from the UK for, for the shift from coal to gas, for example, in heating or the shift from steam to electricity in power generation back at the start of the 19th century, you kind of see these plateaus, they last for a bit um, because it takes time for the new technology to get big enough to really kill the old one. Mm-hmm. But that's nevertheless the pattern. So you think we're on the we're on the bumpy plateau, right? I, now. I think we're on the plateau at the top of Mount Fuji, and <laughs> the although of course having climbed it myself, I know perfectly well that it is in fact a volcano. And you go down again, but let's let's not go into that. <laughs> um, it is a, it's a plateau at the top, and the point in me is that people should not mistake a little hillock at the top of the plateau right. for another mountain ahead, uh, and that would be the error right now to to do that. And I mean, this for us is, I guess, one of the reasons why carbon tracklers talk so much about stranded assets is because the fossil fuels system and its sort of loyal attack dogs persists in ever seeing continuous growth. And they then Mm. go and build for that growth. And as the growth fails to materialize, they get stranded assets. Along those lines, you 
you make the point, and I feel like this is, I feel like this ought to be a, a more widely appreciated point, which is that you don't have to take substantial market share away from the incumbent to start hurting the incumbent. You just have to take new growth. You just have to stop their growth. And then that peak triggers all sorts of other market dynamics. So like what what happens once the peak sinks in and, and, and it's more widely realized what's happening? So, so once you reach that peak, you, you kickstart a series of positive feedback loops for the challengers and negative feedback loops for the incumbents. And I mean, just to, to run through, we, we, as you say, you put out this paper, just to run through this sort of seven areas we, and then to delve into a couple of them in a bit more detail. So you see it happening you know, in costs, you see it happening in technology, in, in expectations, uh, financial markets, uh, society, politics and, and geopolitics. Those were the seven. But, but just to focus on you know the first one. So think about this. If you are making cars today, go back five years ago, you were sitting pretty. There's a thousand million cars in the world and you know, sales are 100 billion a year. And you know you're expecting ever rising growth, and what could possibly what could possibly disturb that? What what disturbs it is Elon Musk and Tesla, and they come in and they don't have to replace the 1,000 million. They don't even have to replace the 100 million because what's happening is that 100 million is growing at let's say two percent a year. So when Musk and the EV sector takes that two million a year, um, you as a car manufacturer suddenly realize that your growth is over in the old system. You then look at the cost curves of the new stuff and you realize that you're going to have to change and therefore you have to reallocate your capital out of ICE cars and into electric vehicles. Meanwhile, you figure out that actually you've got continuous decline now coming for your ICE car sales. So suddenly your ICE factory is liability, not an asset. And furthermore, as your sales of ICE cars starts to drop, you've got to allocate the same fixed cost structure over a small number of cars, and therefore your car, your cost per unit increases. Sorry, what I'm saying, as you know, Darren, this is economics 101, right? So that's what happens to the old people. What then happens to, to the new people, that is, say, Tesla and the BYD and the EV makers, is that as they produce more cars, the costs of the batteries fall because of these learning curves. And as costs fall, demand increases. And as demand increases, they're taking more market share. And they can, they can then go to the second sort of feedback loop, which is the financial markets, um, Tesla can go to um, to the financial markets in an afternoon. They can raise several billion dollars and build a new factory in Berlin, um, <laughs> which increases their capacity to to build. And at the same time, the fossil fuel sector is finding it very difficult to raise capital and is obliged by investors to change their strategic direction, as we saw, of course, famously with Engine Number One. A question about that, then, um, you know, what can we learn from history about? When this dynamic is underway, what are the chances that the large incumbents successfully pivot versus flame out? Because as you say, they're dragging around this tail, this giant uh, legacy <laughs> you know, system, which can pretty rapidly become a liability. So what's your, I mean, this is a question obviously about the big fossil fuel companies. It's a question about the big car companies, et cetera. What's your take on that? We don't have to do any original thinking here. It's extremely well-documented analysis over decades. Um, and there's even a famous book about it by Christensen, The Innovator's Dilemma, which says that incumbents struggle with disruptive change and few of them make it. And there's another book that I, I often like to refer people to by um, a very respectable financial analyst called Sandy Nairn called Engines That Move Markets, recently re-released, actually. But it's quite an old book. And, and, and he just looks back at technology shifts in what did incumbents do and and the answer is incumbents 
first of all, try and resist change. Then they, they struggle to put capital into these new technologies because they're not sufficiently profitable. Um, and you saw lots of examples of the, of the oil sector saying that uh, over the last decade. You know, we're not going to put our money into solar and wind because you know, we can get a 20% IRR on, on oil and it's like a 5% IRR on solar. Why would we? And then the problem then is that by the time this stuff does get profitable and start to eat into their old business, it's too late. And other people have moved into this this, this area. And that's exactly what's happening now in the energy system. And it's the risk, of course, not just for, you know, we need to widen the argument. It's not just a question of solar and wind and, and, and so on challenging the, the, the current enormous coal, gas and oil system. It's also all of their uh, users, don't forget. Uh, so so you know, the car companies we talked about, but it's the steel companies and it's the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the shipping companies and the airlines, they are just going to get disrupted by by new people coming in with new technology and new ways of doing stuff. And they struggle because precisely as you say, they have this enormous tail of legacy assets, but it's also a problem as, as Christensen points out of legacy thinking, right? You know, when you've spent your entire life digging holes in the ground to, to <laughs> hoik out stuff you know, you find it very difficult to do something new. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons, I mean, mostly I'm pretty optimistic about the electricity sector, but one of the reasons I, I, I worry about it somewhat is that car companies can flame out and EV companies can replace them. Fossil fuel companies can flame out. Clean energy companies can replace them. But we've got in electricity these utilities that are basically stuck there by law and regulation that can't just flame out and go out of business, which is you know, any business that thought as slowly and conservatively as utilities tend to would probably go out of business, but they can't. So it's hard to see how those dynamics bite as much in that sector. It's funny you should say that because, I mean, I agree with you in theory, but what has been notable, of course, is that it's actually been the electricity sector which got disrupted first, Yeah, you know, most notably and famously in, in Europe. And my former boss, Mark Lewis, tells a story about how he was working for one of these one of these electricity companies back in Europe in, in the early 2000s. They absolutely, they, you know, they talked to talk and they put turbines on their annual reports, but they absolutely and privately dismissed this as a threat. And, and actually, lo and behold, you had the combination of, of the crisis and politicians putting increasing pressure on them and this new stuff materialising, driven, of course, by new players. And then they, they actually found that they were indeed completely stuck with uh, old technologies. And then they had to write down famously 150 billion uh, euros of assets in the in the 2010. So yeah, it's somewhat to my surprise, it can happen and it is happening. Uh, but what it does need is it, it needs political push. And, and this, I guess, is the is the point. Why would a politician push a conservative electricity company to change? And why would they change? And the only reason why is if you have incredibly cheap alternatives and your neighbours are deploying them and you're starting to get rumblings from the people that not merely do they have polluted air and electricity outages, but they're also having to pay 25 cents per kilowatt hour, 30 cents per kilowatt hour for their electricity. And their, you know, their mate in the neighbouring country is, is getting it for 10. You know, that's what forces change, actually. So just as a last kind of a last topic to grapple with a little bit here, let's talk about geopolitics because, um, you know, I've had my head down in U.S. politics for for a while and it's been a while since I've thought about the broader context. But you you sort of draw this line between, you know, I think the, 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 the line in international negotiations kind of used to be between developing and developed countries as they used to be called. But you sort of draw this line between fossil fuel producers and consumers and you say geopolitics there those are the kind of the two relevant groups so what's 
What's happening that's creating that divide? So when it comes to fossil fuels, um, you've basically got, well, as you say, two groups of countries, right? So 80% of the world lives in countries that import their fossil fuels, and, and 20% of the world lives in countries that, that, that export fossil fuels. And, and of course, it's actually even more concentrated than that, because even within those countries, like basically 10% of the world lives in countries that, that are very highly fossil fuel dependent. So you know, the Middle East and Russia and Australia, um, for example, uh, which have got very large fossil fuel exports. It's, really, it's a really small group of people, like 10% of the world living in these fossil fuel uh, dependent countries. And then there's the rest of us you know, who have to import this stuff. So when it comes to, and, and, and furthermore, of course, you know, the geopolitical environment at the moment confers a lot of power upon the owners of the fossil fuels. So there's there's this uh, very significant geopolitical power uh, conferred upon Russia and and Middle East as a result of their fossil fuel reserves, and they're then generating these very large rents of of two percent, roughly two percent of global GDP every year, and they're failing to pay for the you know the externality cost of, of call it three trillion dollars a year that's being picked up by the poorest in society, and so on and so forth. So the current system we have very unfair and massively favours um, the, the fossil fuel producers. And lo and behold, the fossil fuel users, which is, as I say, this 80% of the world, and it's all of the areas of growth. So it's it's China and India and most of Southeast Asia and large chunks of Africa, major importers of, of fossil fuels. And they're, they're almost all of the expected growth in demand over the next 40 years. They now suddenly have got their own domestic eternal clean resource and it's cheap so of course they're going to use it and, and of course they're going to be very delighted to use their own homegrown resources because what you're ultimately doing you're trading rents paid to oligarchs and foreigners for local jobs so of course they're going to do that and, and that's why i think you know you again um there are many other people writing about the geopolitics of this this energy transition but if you stand back for a second it's it's pretty clear that it, it's going to benefit the big fossil fuel importers again damage the big fossil fuel exporters and and the question then really is, well, where does the power lie? And today, right now in October 2021, the power clearly lies with the fossil fuel exporters because not enough of this stuff has yet been built. Give it another five years and, you know, the, the power is going to shift. And that's, of course, another reason why people need to get on with building this, this new energy world, because otherwise they're going to continue to be subject to the whims of the fossil fuel exporters. So then why do I hear all this hand-wringing about a new wave of coal plants uh, in China and Vietnam and, uh, you know, in, in developing countries? I keep, I feel like I read this headline every few years. There's like this, uh, despite climate promises, there's this surge of coal plants. How real is that? I mean, the answer is don't worry too much because first of all, sorry, not to belittle the problem because it is a bit of an issue, but it's not as dramatic as it sounds in the headlines because in fact in spite of these new coal plants which have been built first of all global coal demand peaked in 2013 so what's happening is the people have been building them and they've been they haven't actually been using them so the global coal utilization rates has now fallen to about 50 percent um so so the, the thing to focus on is not the new capex going on the second point then is that actually this kind of tale, thanks to the incredibly hard work of thousands, millions of people, I guess, um, this tale of new coal, coal plants is constantly being reduced. Um, mm. So it used to be hundreds of, of gigawatts, and now it's being reduced to dozens. So um, actually, it is very significantly, it has fallen a long way, and it continues to fall. And then when it comes specifically to uh, to, to Vietnam and China, I mean, think of Vietnam, the, you know, things changing literally as we speak, um, because of the, the incredible success of their deployment of solar and wind. 
and they're already now cancelling their coal plants and stopping their plans for expansion of coal. And, and then when it comes specifically to China, I mean, we might see something. There is the rumour, as you know, is at COP, we might see uh, a, a bringing forward of that 2030 peaking fossil fuel demand date. But, you know, the point nevertheless remains that China is very close to peak demand for fossil fuels. I hesitate to say it you know, right now, but it's incredibly close. I mean, to, to, to give you a stat, um, Chinese demand for electricity today per capita is the same as Europe. So that the incredible ramp of, of moving from very low demand to uh, developed level demand, that's happened. That's not going to happen again. Right. And China's the world's largest producer of solar and wind and, and all these other new energy technologies, and they're still growing at 20% a year. I mean, again, you play with the maths a bit, and it's, it's clear that we're very, very close to peak fossil fuel demand in electricity generation in China. And then when I look at the rest of the world, forgive me to be so specific and mathematical, we recently did a report on this, but in 99% of developed markets, we've already seen peak coal demand in electricity. And actually, interestingly enough, in 63% of emerging markets ex-China, we've seen peak demand for um, fossil fuels for electricity. And it's not surprising because there's a new opportunity in town. So so we have a lot of legacy problems and we have some inertia and we we have kind of um, systems which are tooled up for the past, not the future and so on and so forth. I understand all of that. But, but as, as I guess as a financial analyst, you need to look forward and look at what's most likely. What's most likely now increasingly is that people will be uh, deploying these new technologies. On the geopolitics front, and this is, to me, one of the most sort of difficult to answer, but also most fascinating questions, is you described a dynamic in financial markets where, where you, once you just sort of shave off the growth of, uh, of an industry, it sets all these dynamics in motion. I wonder if there's an analogy in geopolitics, so sort of like Russia's power... You know, you think of Russia's power or you think of, uh, you know, African countries' lack of power. How much would global energy have to shift away from Russia's natural gas and to the sort of plentiful solar that Africa has to set off also these sort of feedback loops in terms of geopolitical power and influence? Therein, I guess, lies a question um, beyond my level of expertise. But certainly um, (laughs) it's worth noting that the the year of the peak of the British Empire was, I think, um, just after the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, just before it collapsed. I mean, things always look great at the top, um, <laughs> and you don't need actually that much. What you need is people to realise that the future is different and that they can get their own energy. Um, I mean, I should have mentioned, incidentally, that one of the reasons we're so enthusiastic about this story is that if you look at the technical potential of solar and wind, which has been unlocked in the last five years, it's... 100 times our global energy demand today. I and mean, Africa, as you just mentioned, is an incredible renewable superpower. They've got a 1,000 times as much supply from solar and wind as their current energy demand. So you know, when, when countries are now looking for new development tools, rather than reaching to the old playbook of, you know, we must have coal and gas and oil in order to get development, it's considerably simpler now. You know, you, you can, you've got this wonderful distribution a system called the sun, which will get you know get you this energy anywhere in the country, and you can harness it pretty cheaply, and and uh, that then I think becomes the development tool. So it's a, for me, this is a another aspect of the incredibly, if I may use the word, powerful justice, which is driving this energy transition. Is that people who haven't had a lot of energy in the past now can can have it and can harness it. And sorry, I'm going to come back to geopolitics. That eventually will change the geopolitical. Uh, calculus. But I think, as I said earlier, you know, we're at the top of Mount Fuji at the moment. We're bouncing around. The old is still powerful. In, in Gramsci's words, the, you know, the new is yet to be born. 
um, insufficient size to, to really challenge it. But, you know, it can't be long. By way of wrapping up, I want to bring it back to a one concrete point for my U.S. listeners, something for them to really take away from this. So Biden's goal is to decarbonize electricity by 2035 and for the U.S. to be net zero carbon by 2050. Do you think those are within reach given the amount of policy that's likely to be devoted to them? (laughs) Well, I think that if they're not achieved, the US will be buried by China. It's as simple as that. If the US wants to continue to be a serious player in the modern world, wants to remain a superpower, then it has to embrace superior, cheaper technologies. It's as simple as that. And it's what's really shocking and embarrassing for me as a fellow Westerner is that you know over the last decade, China has leapt ahead and is dominating all of these new technologies. And how can that be when the US has got all of that incredible industrial and intellectual base? So yeah, it's, it, it's pretty simple. If the country wishes to remain serious, then it has to do it. I mean, if not, then then like the UK before it, it will kind of descend into irrelevance, I guess. I guess more what I was getting at is how much is that is baked in, I guess? Are you, will- <laughs> are you willing to put any kind of numbers on, uh, on how much you think is already inevitable or how much requires more policy from Biden? Okay. Um, uh, precision. I need faux precision. No, no okay. I'll, I'll give you faux precision. <laughs> Fear not. Um, it's absolutely achievable because, again, as, as this Oxford paper points out, the more you do, the cheaper it gets. And, and actually, from their calculations for what it's worth, the cost of a transition just in purely financial terms, is cheaper than the cost of business as usual. And as they and many others have pointed out, technically all of this stuff is completely feasible. But you do need very powerful political action to break through the log jams of the incumbents and the inertia of the current system. And so I salute Biden and his team, because that's that seems to be exactly what they're now trying to do. And, and you do need very powerful policy. Because if you step back for a second... This ultimately, as we said, will happen by 2100. But by 2100, it may well be too late. Right. Um, so in order to have to drive it faster, um, and actually for that to be cheaper and fairer and better distributed, you need to get on with it. <laughs> all right. That sounds like a great place to wrap up. Thanks for taking all this time and for and and for cheering me up. Uh, well, thanks, David. I mean, I hope... Um, I hope I didn't overstate my brief there. I just, um, yeah, it seems pretty, pretty clear to me. Well, you're making you're making bold short term predictions. So maybe in a decade we can uh, do another podcast well, and <laughs> in a decade check your numbers. It's it's funny because we we put out this note in 2018 in a little conference room in San Francisco talking about peaking fossil fuel demand coming in the 2020s, and you know it, it got fairly well picked up. But it was you know it was like one of those completely out there ideas. And then lo, lo and behold, you know, you get COVID and it's starting to look like it actually, what is happening? You know, notwithstanding what's happening right now. So we'll see. So far, so good. All right. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, thanks so much for the, for the call and for the opportunity in uh, this country. All right. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.